Hello, everyone. This is Teresa Chan. Welcome to a special edition of the Mac Emerge podcast. Today, on March 26, 2020, I had the great fortune of being the host of the McMaster University Department of Medicine's Chairs Rounds. With Dr. Shagla and Dr. Crowther's permission, I am resyndicating the audio from this Zoom webinar. Of course, the data today is as up-to-date as it is this moment as I'm recording the podcast. Unfortunately, as with most things regarding COVID, everything is moving very, very fast. And so I can't guarantee that by the time you listen to this, it'll be super up-to-date, but it's as up-to-date as I can possibly get, seeing as we just recorded the rounds this morning. So again, take it with a grain of salt if you're from outside of the Hamilton area and are not privy to our local procedures. Take it with a grain of salt if you're listening to this a week from now, sometime in April. But we thought that this information was too important not to share with all the healthcare providers who are listening to our podcast. So without further ado, here is the recording from today's COVID-19 Chairs Rounds with Dr. Zane Shagla of St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and Associate Professor within the Division of Infectious Disease in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. Thank you for the introduction. So I'm, I'm Zane Shagla. I'm one of the infectious disease physicians at St. Joe's and along with my colleague, Dr. Merrick Smea, I have been doing a lot of the um, medical director work for infection control at St. Joe's, um, as well as uh, 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 some social media around COVID. So I would encourage all of you, not shamefully trying to plug my Twitter account, but please join. Uh, I usually do post some updates here and there about uh, articles. Uh, okay. So uh, today is going to be a scientific update and, and uh, you know, there's a lot of things going on around COVID-19 and this is evolving day by day. Uh, and I really wanted to make sure that what we cover today is scientifically grounded, uh, really based on best evidence uh, and really an update from uh, two weeks ago when Dr. Mertz, my colleague from HHS, gave a talk on, on the basics and, and really just building on that in terms of what's come out in the next last couple of weeks. Uh, and some controversies around the topic. Um, I want to start this presentation. So I, many of you who know me personally uh, know I'm a major Raptors fan. This was March, sorry, May 12th. This was the day that Kawhi Leonard hit that uh, glorious shot. Uh, and this was right afterwards. I had the pleasure of being at that game. Um, and as much as we, we talk about uh, our processes, our systems, and everything going forward, I really want to bring it home to people that, you know, if you look at this entire stadium full of people, there were 20,000 in attendance that day. As of this morning, that's how many have passed away from this infection. Uh, and, you know, it seems like a, 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 just the beginnings of a small number, but there are 20,000 people who, um, who by no fault of their own contracted this virus and, and uh, unfortunately passed away from it. So I, I really, really want people to to remember this uh, in, in terms of the messaging going forward and, and our role as, as providers in terms of hopefully combating uh, the mortality we see here. Uh, on a happier note, this is my daughter. She's, you know, she's eight months old. The virus came out when she was four months old. And it's, 
you know, in the four months she's changed, this has changed day by day too as well. And so what I talk about today may not be relevant in two months and four months and in six months. It's, uh, it's the, the pace of progress around this, the, the amount of clinical description has, uh, has just grown day by day, similar to how she's growing day by day. And I, I think just to, to bring it home, two quotes, uh, sorry, one quote by Osler, you know, it is astonishing with how little reading a doctor can practice medicine, but it is not astonishing how badly he or she may do it. Uh, and, and really this goes back to the principles about this being an evolving field, uh, this being in a field where evidence is coming out left and right, and there is a lot of gray evidence coming out too as well. A lot of evidence from case reports, from anecdotes, from reports from the front lines in countries that have been affected we really need to adhere to the evidence behind these decision make these decisions for for diagnosis for treatment for the epidemiology for the infection control rather than relying on uh these gray literature uh, uh pieces to, to inform our clinical practice uh so in terms of conflicts of interest i have none as they pertain to this presentation there's unfortunately no therapeutics that have been approved for coronavirus uh so it's not been sponsored by any of them uh, I am going to stay as much, uh, uh, I'm going to refer to as much of the peer-reviewed literature as possible and stay as well away from gray literature as possible. One of the interesting things, and just as a side note, uh, the um, pre-peer-reviewed uh, online journals have taken off quite a bit with some of these publications, and I've had to source a few of them. Um, as much as I can, I've tried to source peer-reviewed journals, but again, there is, there is a number of, uh, of reports from universities or, or from small groups which aren't validated that I have no access to the primary data, and I'm really trying to stay away from those as, as part of this presentation, as, as I don't think that's been as rigorous as, as possible. Um, I've tried to, as, as you know, uh, Dr. Crowther had emailed out uh, last week to answer as many questions as possible through the content of this presentation. I will try my best to leave some uh, time for questioning, which will be done with the chat feature and I think Teresa reading them out. Uh, but uh, I apologize if I can't get to every question uh, along the lines of this presentation. So uh, I uh, am going to go through a few updates in epidemiology, a few updates in disease pathogenesis, some controversies that have come up regarding certain receptors and medication, a bit of an update on clinical presentation and some atypical features, uh, a little bit on diagnostics and particularly looking at our diagnostics at St. Joseph's and Hamilton Health Sciences and some of the validation. Uh, in terms of treatment, uh, two major, I would say, papers, I wouldn't say there were, one was not a clinical trial, uh, that have come out and just discussing the evidence around that uh, and time for just some thank yous and, and questions going forward. So this is the World Health Organization situation report from yesterday. Uh, I bringing the attention to the fact that the highest burden of disease is no longer in China. It is distributed through uh, Western Europe. So Italy, France, Germany, Spain, Portugal, uh, and Switzerland have seen probably the biggest burdens of disease as well as the UK. Uh, the United States is not far behind. But the other thing I really want to emphasize is the countries that seem to be reporting the, the, the major amount of cases are the ones that have the competency testing. Um, uh, I don't think there's going to be a difference between 
the um, what we see in in areas of the world that have very minimal access to testing in terms of the prevalence rates and incidence rates, they're artificially reduced here. Uh, but I, I do think this is a global issue, and unfortunately, the burden of the disease is going to hit low-income countries much higher than they are going to hit uh, resource-intensive countries like ourselves. This is data from the United States as of yesterday. Uh, you see the epicenter of the outbreak is in New York City, 33,000 cases, uh, which is again almost Although you see a distribution throughout most of the United States here, uh, other hot pockets in Florida, Washington State and California, which go with population density. Uh, uh, but uh, this is an evolving outbreak. There has been issues with testing in the United States. So this is probably much more of a tip of the iceberg than the actual uh, prevalence of cases. And as we'll talk about a bit later, even some, some data around asymptomatic cases there are some models and, and modeling has become such a hot topic these days, suggesting the uh, burden of disease in New York is, is significantly higher in the millions. And so uh, uh, these are probably very, very big underestimates of the true burden of disease in the United States. As of yesterday, this is the Canadian map. So uh, there was a big surge in cases in Quebec, which may have been more due to testing rather than anything else and reporting of testing. Uh, in Ontario, we have 688 cases, but there are several thousand cases that are still waiting in provincial testing laboratories. Uh, and so uh, probably not a reflection of our true numbers as of today, probably our true numbers as of about four or five days ago. Uh, BC and Alberta have also had a significant burden. Uh, there is the only place in Canada that has been spared is Nunavut, uh, which has zero cases, but uh, Yukon and Northwest Territories uh, as well as even PEI and the Maritimes have, have all seen a single or, or uh, multiple cases. And finally, this is just local data from Hamilton. Uh, I do want to emphasize a couple of things that are going on with the Canadian data, uh, which are being reflected in the Hamilton data too as well. Number one is community spread is being seen. There was a report in the Globe and Mail a couple of days ago suggesting 45% of total cases across Canada were derived from the community. Uh, Ontario's data from the last check was more in the 10 to 15% range. In Hamilton, there have been two cases uh, that uh, uh, are definitely community acquired and a number of cases that are pending investigation in terms of uh, travel acquired uh, versus community acquired. Uh, the distribution is, uh, is throughout all populations uh, and uh, uh, four cases hospitalized to date and unfortunately we at St. Joe's dealt with a single death from, from the coronavirus. Uh, and not dissimilar numbers to what's happening in our region in Niagara, uh, although the burden is slightly less there, and Halton too as well. Uh, there have been a number of people that have been going to the assessment centers uh, and one of our uh, institutions in, uh, in, um, in uh, Stony Creek Heritage Green is under outbreak too as well for uh, two residents that have tested positive. So one of the issues that's been coming up more recently is this concept of asymptomatic carriage. And so uh, whether or not there is a significant burden of uh, people infected that have very minimal, if not no symptoms, uh, as well as what really does that impact in terms of the actual transmission. So we know a number of infections, there is asymptomatic carriage or at least a pre-symptomatic phase. Uh, we know viral loads can certainly be approaching that of, of people that are symptomatic, uh, but the role to play in, in persistence and, 
and the person-to-person -person spread is very controversial. So uh, one of the interesting parts of this outbreak is we've had uh, a number of epidemiologic studies done on populations that have been going from very uh, intense infected places to essentially areas where there's been zero infection. And so uh, the, the first big descriptions on, uh, on asymptomatic carriage were this flight uh, uh, coming back from Japan where they tested everyone aboard the flight. These were patient, people that were uh, evacuated from Wuhan as, as the initial uh, outbreak uh, went on. They swabbed them and four people on board, about 13% of people on the flight were actually asymptomatic. Now they didn't know what the actual uh, transmission of those patients were, but uh, but it was one of the first documentations of, of people just having absolutely no symptoms, but having relatively uh, high viral loads. Uh, the Diamond Princess ship, I think that we all know about, which uh, was a bit of a disaster, but an incredible epidemiologic experiment. There's a, a really interesting article describing kind of the cruise ship process and MMWR uh, available through the CDC that just came out a couple of days ago. Uh, but this is probably the uh, the the closest to a natural history experiment that we're going to get. Uh, the Diamond Princess had uh, approximately 780 cases. Uh, they were swabbing people repeatedly. They were swabbing people on discharge too as well. Uh, and 46% uh, of those people were asymptomatic. So 331 of about the 780 cases on the ship uh, were asymptomatic as part of that. Uh, and so again, uh, this was a, an older population that was generally on this cruise ship, so may not actually be reflective of the general population, but there is some degree of asymptomatic shedding and whether or not it's 46%, or if you actually apply it to a natural uh, distribution within age, whether or not it's higher, as we know that children and young adults tend to be more asymptomatic than older, uh, older adults. Um, there are some modeling studies ongoing. Uh, uh, there is one suggestion from, uh, again, a preprint journal in, um, coming out of China that was sponsored through Harvard, that actually 60% of the cases in the Wuhan region, the growth that they saw in the Wuhan region could not be explained simply by the, the positive cases that were identified to date. Uh, and had suggested about 37,000 undetected cases in Wuhan. Um, and again, multiple studies, uh, kind of controlled studies or family cohorts, suggesting that the viral load in these asymptomatic cases approaches that of the viral loads in people with, with minimal symptoms, mild symptoms, not necessarily the people that are critically ill. Now, the question is, is whether or not these, these asymptomatic shedders are, are a source of infection in the community versus uh, just, you know, people that may infect close contacts where there's more close respiratory environments, more shedding into the environment, more uh, fulmite-based transfer, that type of thing. So uh, as this was being, again, uh, people were going from very vulnerable areas to very, uh, um, uh, 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 isolated areas for the virus, uh, there were transmission chains seen. So the, the first one that was described was in the New England Journal. Uh, there was a Shanghai traveler that was in contact with her parents from Wuhan that had showed up to Munich at a business conference uh, and had infected a number of people at that conference. Now there was a, it was interesting that New England Journal article uh, said she was asymptomatic at the time, but the author said actually not actually asked her whether or not she was having symptoms. And she had reported to others, she was actually feeling quite jet lagged, had taken Tylenol. Uh, and so maybe she was actually mildly symptomatic rather than asymptomatic at that point. 
Uh, there was a, a similar case series in JAMA of a, a Wuhanese traveler that had come to Singapore and a, an entire family cohort that was infected. Uh, again, at the time, Singapore did not have local transmission, so it was really that source case. Uh, and again, the Wuhanese traveler really did not have symptoms throughout. Uh, and so we can, we can at least say in these close contact settings, there probably is uh, some degree of asymptomatic transmission, which makes sense. You know, these are families, these are colleagues at a business meeting, there's probably person-to-person contact, there's, there, there may be shared fomites, shared drinks, that type of thing. Whether or not this actually applies to a large population is still very controversial. Um, this is a modeling study that was done in science uh, that, that was looking at the data in China, the growth rate in China, and trying to describe it based on the reproductive rate of symptomatic individuals, uh, and uh, as well as looking at mobility data within China and geographic density data within China. Uh, and their conclusions were 86% of all uh, infections were undocumented. Uh, and they may actually account for 55% of all transmission events, where the numbers that were just made of symptomatic individuals didn't account for the growth in infections that were seen. Um, there's obviously issues with this data. It's modeling. It's based on reported numbers. Um, it's, uh, it's, you know, whatever you put into the model that comes out of the model. But if, as we get more and more data around this, uh, and as, as more countries are doing uh, big surveillance studies of asymptomatic, uh, asymptomatics, we may get a better sense of what the actual transmission rates are uh, for these asymptomatic individuals. Moving on, uh, just more uh, from, uh, again, uh, an epidemiologic outpoint. Uh, these are um, uh, Ontario data from UHN in terms of uh, modeling in terms of what's going on and what may happen in the near future. Uh, these are two scenarios that were built through UHN uh, and they're the modeling site I, I can, uh, is online. Uh, and so this, this one was in the context of social distancing. So the conservative scenario where the infection rate spreads very slowly through the population. Uh, the, um, the gray is ward beds, the yellow being ICU beds, and the, the, the uh, blue being ventilators. Uh, and again, this is not incidence, but resource allocation. And you can see uh, day one being mid-March, uh, the, with the conservative social distancing method, they're day 35, day 40 is where we may start seeing the peak of cases, so kind of early to mid-May. Uh, there are studies being done at HHS, St. Joe's, and through the city of Hamilton, looking at regional data in that context to see whether or not our models seem to fit with this. Uh, but um, but there there certainly may be a strain, and this is again Ontario wide, so so uh, accounting for some of the geographical variations in terms of patients' care. Um, but there we may start seeing a strain in about a month to a month and a half if social distancing keeps up. This is the Italy scenario. So this is the scenario of. Uh, social distancing was instituted way too late and things spread rapidly through the population as we're seeing in Lombardy uh, and Figuermo. Um, and so uh, if we said mid-March was day zero, by end of March, essentially, we're seeing a run out of ICU resources. And by the beginning of sorry, mid, sorry, mid to late April, we're seeing the run out of essentially hospital beds. And so uh, I, you know, bottom line, I think most of us in public health are really, really, really enforcing social distancing and see the evidence for um, ongoing therapies for prevention and treatment are not effective uh, to date. And so really, this is going to be our major intervention to avoid health system strain. 
uh, hopefully more modeling data will be coming out. And again, we're working with the city of Hamilton and, and HHS to, to come out with some modeling data that, that uh, appropriately describes our own situations too as well. Moving on to disease pathogenesis. Uh, one of the newer or at least older discoveries that's being revisited is the uh, uh, the attachment of the virus and whether or not novel therapies as well as um, uh, other therapies that patients may be on may actually affect this. So the ACE2 receptor is uh, extremely important in, in SARS binding, but as well as SARS-CoV-2, which is the current uh, novel coronavirus. Um, uh, it is, uh, it is the, the receptor for binding. ACE2 receptors are found actually throughout the body in, 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 in certain compartments. Uh, ACE2 is a uh, reversal agent for the angiotensinogen uh, renin-aldosterone system. So uh, remember, you get uh, renin and ACE going from angiotensin and angiotensinogen 1 to angiotensinogen 2, uh, whereas ACE2 actually goes the opposite direction. And so uh, you rather than getting the vasoconstriction uh, that you get with ACE, uh, you then get vasodilation uh, with uh, ACE2. Uh, and so this has created a lot of controversy at whether or not upregulation of these ACE2 receptors has a role to play in disease pathogenesis. Uh, and there was a lot of controversy uh, particularly around the initial data sets that had come out in terms of the epidemiologic studies of the first uh, 1,100 patients from Wuhan and further data around the first few patients that were developing ARDS, uh, where rather than in H1N1, where they saw uh, immunosuppression being the major risk factor for adverse outcomes, here it actually seemed to be much more associated with hypertension and vascular disease. Uh, and so this ACE hypothesis was brought up uh, quite a bit more. We know, although ACE inhibitors don't directly upregulate up ACE2 expression, they are upregulated in the context of ACE inhibition. And so whether or not there are more targets generated from this, uh, and so there's a huge controversy of whether or not patients who are on ACE inhibitors should be taken off ACE inhibitors, whether patients who are admitted to hospital should be taken off ACE inhibitors to prevent spread of the infection. Interestingly, there is other work that actually suggests the opposite. So um, there's a, an acid wash model uh, for SARS where they caused lung injury uh, in SARS infection, where down regulation of ACE2, so a lower number of ACE2 receptors was associated with worsening lung injury. Uh, and so maybe ARBs may be actually uh, protective, the higher levels of ACEs may be protective. And so this is an area of controversy. I think this is being investigated thoroughly throughout newer cohorts. Uh, I do want to say the jury is still out on all of this. Uh, the American Heart Association, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society, the European Eucardio uh, uh, have all suggested there's no clinical data in patients that are on ACE inhibitors to continue their ACE inhibition while in hospital, um, to not uh, reconsider the use of ACE inhibitors in people with hypertension currently, uh, and, uh, and really just to, to ignore the data until better evidence becomes available. And there are clinical trials now set up looking at Losartan as a, a potential modulator of infection uh, um, for early infection and whether or not down regulation, um, uh, sorry, whether or not reversing that down regulation may actually provide therapeutic effects. So this is something that will hopefully come out of the pipeline in the next few weeks. Uh, 
NSAIDs are also one of the areas that became very controversial recently. Uh, there was some commentary, so a, a Lancet publication looking at patients with poor outcomes. Uh, uh, the French health minister had actually had a tweet saying they were seeing these with ibuprofen patients that got high doses of ibuprofen prior to coming to uh, the hospital. Uh, there was actually nothing published about this. The French government then put out a statement saying avoid uh, NSAIDs, particularly ibuprofen, in, in patients who uh, have SAR, uh, SARS-CoV, uh, and, uh, and the UK government followed suit. It's interesting, the, the World Health Organization actually endorsed this recommendation and then a day later completely turned face when there was really no evidence around this topic. Uh, the DOT mechanism is similar to prior, where, where NSAIDs may actually increase ACE2 uh, receptor um, expression. Uh, and so uh, whether or not that's, that's the cause, so far there's, there's no signal seen in any literature to date. The World Health Organization has said not to uh, consider ibuprofen a restricted drug in people with coronavirus. Uh, again, this, this data will probably be coming out down the line in some sort of case control study. Uh, but for now, uh, you know, NSAIDs are considered part of care if it's needed. Obviously, if they're not needed, it wouldn't be prescribed, particularly patients with, with other underlying issues like hypertension and renal injury. Uh, but, but this is an area where uh, there was a lot of concern raised over social media without any real evidence to suggest uh, an effect. Another article that came out recently was this correspondence from the New England Journal of Medicine uh, talking about aerosol and surface stability of SARS-2 as compared with SARS-1. Uh, to my regard, I think this was very poorly written in terms of the mechanistic model they were going for as compared to the typical human model of droplet contact transmission. And so they use this fancy aerosolizer, which is this big drum that, that will aerosolize particles to a very small amount. This is the equivalent of doing an aerosol generating procedure on a patient. However, the article didn't explicitly note this. And in fact, if you read through it, there is some wording nearby that, that isn't suggestive, but may confuse the reader to suggest this is a typical cough model. But it is not. This is an aerosol generating procedure model of the half-life of coronavirus particles on, on, on different surfaces, including moisture within the environment. Uh, so uh, in this study, they essentially aerosolized the compound. They saw it fall on, uh, on uh, they, they took uh, um, uh, samples of air and looked at three other materials, copper, stainless steel, and plastics, to see what the half-life of was for decay of the coronavirus. Remember, viruses are, um, they do exist in the environment, they're enveloped, they, they do have some environmental sensitivity, they're uh, prone to uh, dehydration and, and, and breakdown by that point. So their stability in the environment is certainly there for, for a set amount of time, but they're not gonna stay in the environment forever. Uh, and so in this, in this study, uh, air was about uh, an hour or so that it stayed as the half-life, copper was about the same. Stainless steel was about 5.6 hours, and plastics were about seven hours. And so, there, there. If you if you look at the you know five half lives on plastics, which I'm 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 copying a pharmacologic model over onto the, this model, uh, we're talking in the one to two day range. Things are remaining on plastics, but again, they were doing this via um, uh, PCR testing. 
Uh, it's not clear whether or not that actually translates over to infectivity rather than just finding molecular fingerprints and molecular suggestions. There was some look at the Diamond Princess ship where this may have been as long as nine days, but again, molecular evidence rather than clinical evidence uh, of infection. So no, no surrogate to say infectivity rather than just some residual virus that may or may not be viable. Uh, I get asked a lot of questions around uh, what is the contamination within a room and clothing. This is a single patient experience in Singapore that was published in JAMA about two weeks ago. So this followed a patient around in an airborne room and kind of swabbed everything within that room. Uh, the good news is all of these uh, samples before cleaning actually, after cleaning went to negative. Um, but you know, in a typical single private room in, uh, in negative pressure, the patient contaminated their bed rails, their chair, their light switches, the sink, the floor, uh, the, the windows, the toilet bowl, uh, and uh, um, uh, not a lot of the PPE. So the staff PPE was actually isolated afterwards. The uh, upper part, lower part, front surface of the face visor and the N95 mask based on uh, swabbing were all negative. The surface of the front of shoes was positive and probably a reflection of colonization on the floor, but at least a little bit reassuring that general clothing uh, is, is may, may or may not be a major issue, uh, especially in the context of removable PPE, how much of this would actually get on clothing underneath if it was taken off in an appropriate manner is still very controversial. Um, but in a typical exposure situation, again, for a hospitalized patient, we may not actually be seeing a lot of it ending up on clinicians uh, clothing rather than uh, rather than the patient's environment, but also to be to be uh, in context that uh, the patient's environment can be very heavily contaminated by this, and so that hand hygiene after encounter with the patient's environment is exceptionally important, as well as the cleaning that we're instituting amongst all of our institutions. Uh, moving on, I want to talk briefly about the clinical presentation and some updates. So uh, the initial 1099 cohort that was described in the New England Journal really described fever, cough, and worsening shortness of breath, which became a mantra within our, our case description. Uh, uh, there are other symptoms that are starting to be described as part of this. So myalgia is the European Society, I think, or, sorry, the UK Society for ENT has also described anosmia as an initial symptom, which is a bit difficult given it's allergy season here and a lot of people have allergy-induced anosmia too as well. Conjunctivitis has been described in a number of cases. Um, but I do want to bring up one article that's important. This is actually a, a, a study from the American Journal of Gastroenterology that was actually released, I think, about a week and a half ago, looking at gastrointestinal symptoms as the preceding symptoms for uh, infection. And so in that initial New England series of 1,100 patients, diarrhea was actually a very uncommon symptom, about 3.5%. In this description of a further cohort, uh, multi-center in Hubei, um, gastrointestinal symptoms were actually found quite early in the process. And so anorexia and diarrhea uh, tended to be early symptoms. Uh, interestingly, when they looked at patients without, um, uh, without gastrointestinal symptoms, the people with gastrointestinal symptoms tended to have a longer disease course. They tended to have more end organ disease. Uh, and there was actually about six 
patients in this cohort that present with presented with only diarrhea only syndromes and it's still very unclear whether or not those people were having diarrhea from another reason and were asymptomatic shedders or the diarrhea was actually induced by the coronavirus. Um, there are some small studies suggesting that it can be isolated from stool in a small percentage of patients, whether or not that's an actual infectious dose in stool or it's just uh, molecular evidence of this. Um, but bottom line is I think we, we do need to consider gastrointestinal symptoms as part of the, the complex. These, a lot of these patients did go on to develop respiratory symptoms, so uh, uh, it became much more clear. Um, and certainly there's a lot of things that give people intermittent anorexia, diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting that aren't coronavirus. So, so the, um, the positive predictive value of these symptoms as compared to everything else that goes on in the community is not as high as we would expect. But just to keep this in the back of the mind that, that you know, the person with these symptoms might be better off isolating at home, watching for respiratory symptoms, and then sending them for testing if they do develop multiple symptoms or fevers or anything along those lines. This is also another study that was uh, taking a look at um, uh, that German cohort. So as I had I talked earlier uh, about that, that, um, that cohort of people that were exposed in Munich uh, that uh, were exposed to that single traveler from Shanghai, they, they the, um, the Germans actually took a good look at these people's viral kinetics and their shedding during the duration of their illness. This was very early in, 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 uh, in the transmission cycle that we're seeing now. So these patients were all actually hospitalized, even though they were, a lot of them could have been isolated at home, but they were studied during that hospitalization too as well. Uh, and so the bottom line from this, this cohort of patients that, that from Germany that were exposed um, uh, the PCR was, was found to be quite sensitive. Uh, and so they, they used culture-based techniques to actually determine whether or not it was a, a viable virus or not a viable virus. Uh, the viral load was actually quite high from about day one post-symptom onset. So about day four where the peak was, um, they could culture the virus out of throat, NPS and lung tissue. Uh, and despite actually in this study, they tried to look for um, uh, virus in stool, like viable virus in stool. They were able to find molecular evidence on PCR of virus in stool, but were never able to actually isolate viable culture. Uh, and so the infectivity of stool in, in this cohort seemed to be much less, uh, much less um, uh, uh, higher up. Uh, for those who recovered, there was relatively minimal viable virus on day 10 of illness. Uh, and this was associated with a serologic response of IgM and IgG. We'll talk about serologic tests a little bit later. Um, but uh, important to note, as we're talking about our community-based interventions, particularly in settings where we're not able to access swabs for everyone with symptoms, that 14-day rule is probably reasonable for the bulk of patients as their amount of viable virus is, uh, is significantly um, uh, uh, decreased by day 10. This is also going to be an issue for the patients that are recovering at home uh, who have been virologically confirmed to be positive as we're running lower and lower on resources to test and, and shifting that towards people who need it more. We may make some arbitrary definition of 14 days post onset of symptoms as the isolation period for these people rather than using molecular tests to de-screen them as you may get molecular positivity over time, but that may not actually um, uh, reflect infectivity based on culture. 
Uh, and so public health is looking at this in terms of coming up with a streamlined definition in terms of deflagging, particularly now that we're seeing 600 patients in Ontario and following those all to the ends of the disease might be a bit more difficult. Uh, talking through diagnostic testing, I wanna mention uh, the test that's being done at Hamilton Health Sciences St. Joe's. Uh, so this is, uh, 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 so currently outpatients are being sent to assessment centers through public health. We'll talk about the case definition on the next slide. Uh, through, uh, but, but patients within our institutions are using an in-house assay. We are using a different target, the UTR target, which in our validation studies has equal sensitivity to the envelope target that PHL uses. Uh, PHL uses the envelope target plus RDRP. Um, we've tested 700 clinical specimens in parallel with the clinical lab uh, with public health to, to go through this validation process. The specificity has been 100%. Um, but a swab is only as good as the person swabbing, and so there are some caveats here. Um, number one is people may not shed all the virus completely. They may have very low viral loads, and their, their kinetics may change on a day-to-day -day basis as well, when we look at the Plaquenil trial. Um, and the specimen collection may not be perfect. In talking with the lab folks, they did look at epithelial DNA on the first 700 swabs that were done in the research context, and there was epithelial DNA noted on all of them, good amount. So at least the, the technique has been reasonable for the swabs that we've sent to date. This is our local case definition, so uh, or, or um, uh, Ontario's case definition, so travel to an impacted area, contact with COVID, or close contact with someone with acute respiratory illness who's been to an impacted area and whom COVID testing is recommended um, or unavailable. Now, this is a definition that will likely change over the next few days to weeks as we see much more community-based transmission Certainly in our hospital setting, anyone that you think is at risk who's presenting with upper respiratory symptoms, regardless of travel history, consider testing on. And, and I think that will be the practice of the communities as we get to settings where um, resources for swabs may be limited. And certainly we're seeing this in British Columbia. This may be limited more to uh, people with mild disease stay home, healthcare workers, those from vulnerable populations like shelters, jails, and indigenous reserves. Um, people who are hospitalized or from long-term care may be more qualified for testing even in the context of mild disease, whereas uh, people who uh, have very mild disease without any of those uh, subgroups would be just encouraged to stay home for the duration of their illness. I, again, I talked about this negativity result. It's a difficult issue uh, as uh, the, the, the Chinese assay suggested the, the swab sensitivity is 70%. Our assay is probably a bit more sensitive than that Chinese assay. But as you'll see when I describe some of the French data, there is intermittent shedding even in the patients that test positive. They can test negative the next day and positive the day after that. So uh, the bottom line is um, uh, this is like any other disease process where you still have a pretest probability. So people presenting with compatible symptoms. Uh, we are seeing community spread now. So travel is only a positive risk factor. It should not be a negative risk factor. Um, and in patients that are intubated uh, from the experience from SARS, uh, ETA or lower tract sputums may actually be a, a better sample in that sense. Uh, the surviving sepsis guidelines that were published by Walid Halahazani and his group uh, had suggested weak evidence, but in, in patients where the clinical context is right to consider sputum and ETAs testing. Uh, and uh, we are debating on what to do next for patients that are very high risk that show up or high pretest probability that show up with a negative test. Uh, we may have a strategy of re-swabbing them, but this isn't, uh, this isn't standard of care yet. 
uh, but keep an eye out for for what we what we decide on these for patients that can't produce sputum or, or ETA specimens. Serologic kits are coming out. There's point of care testing uh, moving to the USA and Canada. Uh, the roles of this are, are going to be interesting. Whether or not you can do seroprevalence studies, whether or not it's a method to actually get people out of isolation earlier by just doing a point of care serologic testing, they have a good antibody response, and that might uh, um, compare to uh, viral shedding. Uh, and for healthcare workers, it might be a, a good test to see, okay, who should be on the front lines? Those, those asymptomatics that have developed a good IgM, IgG response might actually be better to go on the front lines uh, uh, rather than people that haven't. Uh, I'll quickly skip, as I, I want to keep some time for questions, to two clinical trials uh, that have come out to date, which are probably the most important evidence that's come out so far about the coronavirus. Uh, lopinavir-ritonavir is an old combination of protease inhibitors used in HIV therapy. They're actually still used quite a bit in low-resource settings, so there is a lot of interest in this as there is supply in some settings for this. Um, uh, the, the protease is involved, as in that diagram earlier, we looked at ACE2 inhibition and a secondary receptor too as well. The protease is actually involved in, in that second receptor and, 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 uh, and breaking it down. And so potentially protease inhibitors may play a role in that, that second co-receptor uh, uh, process. Now, this is not a clean drug. There's lots of drug-drug interactions. It is very nausea and vomiting and diarrhea provoking. Uh, and so uh, really a good look at this, this evidence to see whether or not it, 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 it's worth it to put patients through this that already have physiologic disturbances. Uh, and there's certainly in vitro and in vivo data in SARS. It was used as late as 2004 for SARS and the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, where it's been used as off-label treatment too as well, suggesting some benefit. So this is an RCT that was done. Uh, I Just before we go through it, I want to recognize how incredible this RCT uh, came out. So this was enrolling January 18th to February 3rd and was published last week in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, and so a clinical trial from beginning to end in terms of enrollment, data analysis, manuscript preparation, and publication to be done in a two-month uh, uh, window from enrollment is absolutely unheard of. And so uh, I really do want to give respect to these authors that, that, that push the scientific knowledge forward. This was an open-labeled RCT, one-to-one, -one, ritonavir. 100 milligrams POBID. Uh, uh, it was given either pills or oral suspension versus standard of care uh, in a single center in Wuhan. Uh, uh, this included people greater than 18 who were PCR positive who had pneumonia on imaging. So this is very different than some of the mild cases we would see. Uh, stats of less than 94% on room air or PAO2 or FiO2 ratio of less than 300. It excluded physician preference, people with allergy, people with cirrhosis or Han metronidazole. The reason being is the oral formulation of lopinavir ritonavir actually has a significant amount of ethanol that's uh, used for its um, its uh, its uh, reconstitution. So uh, it can't be given to people who who can't uh, tolerate it. Uh, people who have major drug interaction who are HIV positive, as it would screw up the regimen, and people who are non-pregnant breastfeeding. They stratified patients by O2 method, so no O2, O2 by NP or face mask, high flow O2, negative pressure ventilation, or patients that were ventilated or who were on ECMO. Uh, the primary endpoint was time to clinical improvement. They used a seven-point scale where one is being home and back to baseline, seven is death, six is ventilated on ECMO. Uh, and, and so there's a progression in between. 
They looked at secondary outcomes in terms of day seven, 14 clinical status and 28 day mortality. Generally, the populations were relatively well assigned. 199 went through uh, randomization. There was only a couple of patients that dropped out either through death uh, or uh, um, uh, uh, one that a couple that crossed over into the safety populations, but generally well, well um, recruited and, and not a lot of drop off. The one thing I want to point out in terms of the table, uh, table two, but the table one is uh, the uh, time this was actually given to patients. So this was given day 13, uh, which is uh, a little bit, as we talk about critiques of this article, may not be the appropriate time interval to be prescribing antivirals in the sense that the damage may be done, uh, but otherwise relatively well balanced between the two arms. Uh, this is the survival uh, Kaplan-Meier curve, but essentially no difference between lopinavir, ritonavir, and control uh, in terms of that cumulative two-point improvement. Uh, this is viral loads of those patients too as well. And initially, uh, the lopinavir, ritonavir patients actually had a higher viral load, but by the end of the, the, the trial, um, they essentially had petered out to about the same. And the bottom line is Kalitra, lopinavir, ritonavir was no more benefit than standard care. There was a slight signal towards potentially one day less of discharge uh, and uh, slightly less, slightly more clinical improvement day 14, although on the, the intention to treat analysis that was not seen. Um, there's not really a virologic benefit for this process, but I think us in the community have a really big issue of when this was actually administered. So day 13, when patients are relatively ill in this study, the damage may be done, as we know, this may be more of an immune-modulated disease after a certain point than an uh, infectious disease. And so uh, shutting down that process, the damage may have actually been done by that point, and you may not actually see a clinical response. And so I think Kalitra does, does need to be studied more, and there are certainly other groups, including the World Health Organization and CATCO, looking at this, um, but, but in a trial setup that needs to be given early rather than late. The last trial I'll talk about is this hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin trial for COVID-19. Uh, this is a trial that was published in a very relatively, I would say, unknown journal, so the International Journal of Antibiotic uh, Therapy um, by a French group in Marseille. Uh, and so this was a single center uh, trial. It's not really a, a controlled trial, as we'll see. Uh, so the single center had the intervention of giving hydroxychloroquine, multi-center for the control. Uh, the, the Marseille patients got hydroxychloroquine and Mar Marseille and region patients were used as the, the control. These were PCR patients, day tw uh, over 12 with no contraindications and, and not pregnant or breastfeeding, although hydroxychloroquine is relatively safe in pregnancy still. Uh, they were followed virologically and we use cycle threshold for uh, people who, who don't have a molecular knowledge, cycle threshold is the cycle of PCR where we start seeing fluorescence uh, more than the baseline. So really when we start seeing a positive signal, the longer the cycle threshold, the lower the viral load is technically. So cycle thresholds of 40 are considered negative in this trial, 35, which is a bit of an issue. Uh, and higher cycle threshold, sorry, lower cycle thresholds of 1, 2, 10 are considered very high viral loads. Uh, Six patients also had azithromycin thrown on. It's not really clear why. The, the article says it's for bacterial superinfection or prevention of bacterial superinfection, but the patients that had azithromycin thrown on were not randomized by any means. It was physician's preference alone. Uh, 
when we look at the actual uh, recruitment and results, 26 patients were uh, recruited in the hydroxychloroquine arm as opposed to 16 controls. Six patients of those hydroxychloroquine patients actually dropped out. Uh, and it's important we'll talk about what the caveats of those people are. There were about 17% of patients that were asymptomatic, 61% that had an upper respiratory finding, uh, upper respiratory syndrome, and 13% that had lower respiratory symptoms based on CT findings of pneumonitis. This was the finding that made headlines. So uh, hydroxychloroquine as compared to uh, control, uh, the percentage of patients with positive PCR samples was less. So this was just swabbing people, saying if they were positive or negative on a certain day, and the percentage of patients who were positive were higher in the group that got nothing versus the percentage of patients that had hydroxychloroquine. This is not uh, quantitative in terms of what cycle threshold or anything like that. So that's one big caveat to this. When they added azithromycin, the, the amount of patients that had uh, uh, negative results were even higher in the azithromycin plus hydroxychloroquine group. And so this got a lot of press, but there are huge issues with this data. Number one, those six missing patients, three of them actually went to the ICU and they were PCR positive. So they would actually be counted as people probably, as we know in patients that are critically ill, they tend to shed a lot for a long time. So they would have actually been counted as positive cases as compared to the other 20. One died that was PCR negative, one left the hospital PCR positive on day two, and one decided to stop the medication on day two, but it was also PCR positive. These were not included in the analysis, but potentially five other patients that were PCR positive that were not counted, and, and, and essentially the, the 20 were, were, were based without this. There's no real clinical data in terms of how these patients did. And so virologic shedding is fine. We know from experience people can shed virus for some time. Does that really mean anything in the context of is the patient actually getting better more than anything else? I'll go to the primary data too as well. Just briefly, uh, this is, this is a, a difficult chart, but the first uh, 16 patients here are the controls and the ones 17 or down are, are the uh, uh, um, intervention group. And the last six are the ones that got azithromycin too as well. You can see some patients here uh, in the control group actually didn't get swabs on consecutive days. Uh, they, uh, in the analysis, they counted them as positive if their swab the day before was positive. But if you look at the table down where the patients that got the intervention, there are some patients here that had uh, positives and negatives and positives the next day. So it's not entirely clear whether or not that analysis on the top of the controls is actually entirely accurate. The other thing here, and especially in that azithromycin arm, you can actually see the cycle thresholds for those patients tended to be much higher. So you see 29s and 30, 30s at baseline for those patients. So those patients had very low viral loads to begin with, and then they cleared very quickly. Whereas if you see in the hydroxychloroquine group, they tended to have lower viral, uh, sorry, lower cycle thresholds, so higher viral loads up front. Uh, and, and we have no quantitation of viral loads in some of the uh, control groups. So the bottom line is this is very gray literature. Uh, there is not a lot that can be taken from this to really say this was a positive trial. If anything, if it was reanalyzed, if we had those extra five patients, if you did proper swabs on some of those controls, the analysis may be completely different. And so I don't think this is a positive trial at all and shouldn't be considered a positive trial. Um, 
And so bottom line, again, these are, this is not a positive trial. This methodology was completely uh, messed up. But the drug does have in vitro activity, and I think there is an importance to actually studying this in a real rigorous clinical trial context. And I know uh, the folks from PHRI are looking aggressively, and I, I really do hope that trial comes to fruition, that it can be given to patients, but watched for for these clinical responses rather than this surrogate study of viral loads, which may not mean anything. Unfortunately, one person got a hold of this trial that shouldn't have. Uh, and put it on Twitter to say hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin have a real chance to be one of the biggest game changers in the history of medicine. Uh, I don't know if Donald Trump can do evidence-based medicine reviews, but he certainly put it out as if he could. Uh, and the implications of this are incredible. So there are global shortages on hydroxychloroquine now that were directly triggered by this tweet over this article. Uh, there are patients in the United States that were taking hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine that was used as aquarium cleaners, uh, as doses to prevent them from getting uh, COVID and have actually died of toxicity. Uh, and uh, we just read this morning, there's a uh, Kaiser Permanente has actually reached out to its patients that are on hydroxychloroquine for chronic rheumatologic diseases, stating they cannot stay on it because there is a nationwide shortage and actually asking patients to be switched off hydroxychloroquine, which is a relatively non-toxic stable option for, for immunomodulation in patients with rheumatoid arthritis and other uh, autoimmune disorders to be switched on to another drug. So this is irresponsible work uh, and, and it has had global implications. I, I don't think there's any evidence for hydroxychloroquine to date, uh, but I think it does need to be studied in a rigorous setting before any of this gray data actually gets released around it. There are a few other compounds that are undergoing clinical trials that there is a bit of a gray literature around too as well. Remdesivir, uh, which was available by Gilead and is now being studied through clinical trials. Ribavirin and interferon. Uh, Favipavir, which is a Japanese influenza drug, which is showing some benefit in some uh, very observational trials. Uh, the CATCO group and the World Health Organization are, are trying to organize a trial called Solidarity, which involves remdesivir, Kalitra, and hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. Losartan, as we talked about, and then IL-6 inhibition in terms of turning off the pathway, and there is a big clinical trial starting uh, globally in a sec with tocilizumab and a second uh, drug, Actemra, in the United States, which is also starting clinical trials, which, again, in, in anecdotal settings seems to have provided benefit, but uh, the, you know, the uh, single anecdote should not inform clinical practice going forward. So final thoughts, this is a relatively young infection and more data is emerging by the day. I think we need to treat patients aggressively, but use medications through clinical trials. We need to make rational decisions around infection control and spread. And unfortunately, the last thing I want to emphasize is the low and middle income countries are going to be lost in all of this. And for those of us who do have global health connection, to really go back and tap them to say if they need resource support or anything you could do remotely, uh, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's going to be an issue for settings that we don't know the prevalence of the disease, but definitely is affecting them. I want to give thanks to a few people at the end of this. Number one, and the people I don't think that get enough recognition are the IPAC teams across the city, both at St. Joe's and HHS that have been essentially working around the clock on this. Some of them taking 24 seven call to help with programmatic issues and patients. Those volunteering their time on med multiple committees, both locally and provincially, the frontline workers who are seeing these patients and putting themselves at risk. Uh, the microbiology laboratory and, and Dr. Smee and his group who have put together an incredible test in a short amount of time 
have taken testing to another level and have really been uh, been able to do quick turnarounds and help with our diagnostics and everyone else that's keeping us safe, including the grocery store workers and, and taxi drivers and all those essential services that keep open. Uh, I realize we don't have a lot of time for questions. Maybe we can extend things for about 10 minutes and I can go through the, the, the top few. Um, uh, I'll leave it to Teresa, maybe to pipe in. Teresa? Hey, Thanks, Mark. Uh, no, no, you're there, you just um, end your screen share and then we can go ahead through the questions. Yeah, stop the share. Yeah, okay. Perfect, okay. So the first question here is, uh, how can we ensure that we have access to testing extremely high-risk populations of prisons? Uh, so I think that that's, that's appropriate. And so public health units are looking at this as part of their screening strategy if we are down on PPE and, and really trying to keep balanced the populations that are high risk. So jails are considered one of those high risk populations. Uh, those of us who are working in jail systems to really ensure that patients with respiratory symptoms have access to assessment centers uh, and um, uh, to, to have a high suspicion outside of um, anything else. So I, I think uh, those of us working in jails have a high suspicion uh send testing for people who you think have respiratory issues it is obviously a big issue in terms of isolation but first point is really just sending that testing we've sent a few tests for people from jails in hamilton uh, and so those of us who are providing care to continue to do that okay um another question is uh, hypertension canada also has harmony with other societies mm -hmm. on peace and arbs so that was i right. guess just a comment yes yes ccs and hypertension canada in terms of uh, the, another question is, in the absence of respiratory symptoms and only GI symptoms, can stool be sent for COVID testing? So I, I think I go back to that study where they tried to look at whether or not they could actually isolate it as an infective form in stool, and there is, uh, they, they weren't. So, I, so number one, I, I think um, stool is probably not as infectious as we think. There is molecular evidence. Uh, we are starting to talk locally at whether or not we can send stool in the right context. And, uh, but I do think uh, you probably would be able to send NPS even uh, recurrently in those patients rather than going to stool. Uh, Dr. Smea, though we've had early discussions though about developing a stool assay should we ever need it, which requires a bit more reagents and reprocessing before it goes to PCR. So it might be something possible and certainly other groups have done it, um, but it requires a little bit more processing beforehand. Okay. And if uh, those with diarrhea don't have respiratory symptoms, um, do you have a sense, sense of the sensitivity of the NPS for those? So NPS, again, we're picking up a lot of asymptomatic patients with NPS. So uh, it's still a reasonable test. That's still the entryway and the replication point of the virus it's where the ACE receptors are. So uh, it still should be the, the frontline test for those people. Uh, as we get more serologic tests, that might also be an interesting place to... Um, to to uh, uh, um, to actually apply it to as well for that population. Mm -hmm. um, there's a question about the survival of COVID on fresh produce, uh, tomatoes, celery, lettuce, berries, etc. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd apply the same data as as we did in the um, in the plastic, stainless steel, and uh, and copper studies. So on those surfaces, there was some half life. We haven't. I don't think we're going to do studies 
you know, looking at tomatoes particularly. Um, I would say in the hours at the most, you know, one to two days. But again, whether or not the virus is still present versus the virus is still uh, infectious is completely different. And so, I, you know, the viruses are still need moisture, need uh, relatively stable temperatures uh, to, to re remain enveloped and, and have their, their ability to infect. And so, uh, although we might find molecular evidence, it may just be shedding or dying virus. So one or two days, use hand hygiene when handling your produce as you would all the time. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't say uh, anything different than that. Okay. Um, in terms of, uh, it since looks like, uh, Dr. Haynes and Dr. Yorio's group will launch a COVID-19 critical, critically appraised evidence mm. website April 1st to help awesome. some, uh, some of this stuff. So Which I think is, is hugely important here, right? There's a lot of great literature coming out as I keep emphasizing here and a lot of it's being passed around. So having a, a good central repository of evidence-based uh, and, and critiqued evidence is, is, is as important as the evidence coming out. Yeah, agreed. There's a lot of people putting stuff on BioArchive or MedArchive, which is a pre-publication yeah. uh, repository. And a lot of the journals are asking people to actually put it there first and then they'll publish it still after. So yes, I think that there's a lot of misinformation that can happen if you're looking at stuff that's not actually even published yet, but rather pre-published, right? So exactly. definitely think exactly. having something like that will be important. Um, are there in-house, are the in-house assays here in Hamilton included in the NPS testing considered a limited resource at this point? Not yet. And so the, 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 the bottom line is people who need to be tested should be tested. Um, Make sure you're testing people with a high pretest probability, though, right? I wouldn't be sending testing on someone that presents with a broken ankle because I feel nervous about dealing with that patient. Uh, that's when we might run into resource issues and we'd have to scale that potential up. Um, the, the bottleneck right now is not necessarily the, uh, the testing kits and the reagents. It's really just the throughput. So I think we have a capacity for about 500 tests a day, which Dr. Smey is working to push up to 1,000 and higher. Um, but you want to make sure those 500 tests are done on people that are symptomatic, on healthcare workers that are symptomatic, the people that really do need that testing first, rather than uh, using them to just make yourself feel better about certain scenarios. Okay. So the bottom line there is, uh, if your pretest probability is really, really low, probably don't test. Exactly. People who exactly. your pretest probability is pretty high, you said uh, test, and then if it's negative, if they're super sick, you may still want to retest at some point. Retest or use ETA or lower track sputum. Okay. Um, though this is a, I guess there's a high incidence of uh, really sick people in some of the ICUs in the area. Um, uh, it seems uh, that there might be people with severe ARDS uh, that have been reported and obviously definitely in the news and on Twitter and things like that as well. If uh, someone was super sick in ICU, uh, where, where do you, what would your advice be uh, for patients with severe ARDS Will we still try Kalitra? Is it too late uh, with hydroxychloroquine? Hydroxychloroquine. I, I think, yeah, I mean, giving, giving unapproved drugs with unapproved indications where we have no clue and it is disease, viral infections are double-edged swords, right? Like uh, 
you know, we know certain vaccine trials have, have caused more pathogenicity for the viruses rather than less. And the ACE inhibitor concept is the, the classic for this, where uh, an ACE inhibitor could be harmful or helpful for the virus. So uh, the bottom line is, I think we do need to, to do this through clinical trial settings. Uh, we are looking, and I think the, the PHRI group, uh, as the GIM group, we're also looking at an approach for this so that we're prescribing drugs in a rational but evidence, uh, evidence-based system where people have access through research trials. Uh, and um, uh, the CATCO group, who's trying to work with the World Health Organization to get the solidarity trial in Canada, all of those may be available to our patients relatively soon. And I'd encourage then to, to just refer patients to a randomized clinical trial rather than um, than just uh, um, treating them willy-nilly with the drug to say that we think this is going to work. All right. The next question is, what's the average length of time for a person to develop the virologic load to become positive for a test? Like when is two uh, test? Yeah, I think I, I had a slide on this where, where, you know, day one to four is where we saw in, in that cohort that they would develop day one to four post symptoms they would have and their peak was kind of day four for the viral load it started going down after that um, but again critically ill patients can be fairly high viral loads for some time and shed for some time so it's very variable patient dependent okay thank you the next question is uh, given the data you presented i don't think we'll be using empiric calitra or chloroquine outside of the context of a trial um, can you comment on the use of other antibiotics or let's say what looks like pneumonia, because there might be still regular <laughs> community acquired pneumonia. Yeah, and, and so I think where there is a clinical doubt where, where it could be pneumonia, so someone presents with a lot of sputum, they had uh, uh, you know symptoms that could be suggestive of pneumonia, they've had recurrent pneumonia in the past, they've aspirated. There's a role to still give antibiotics. Not every respiratory infection is going to be COVID. Uh, once it becomes very apparent that it's COVID and predominantly COVID, then I think there is a an argument to stop antibiotics at this point. Uh, you know, I do, there is a there was a bit of a push as well to get azithromycin to all these patients. Uh, the six patient experience is the best data for that. But uh, you know, again, based on Donald Trump's tweets, azithromycin is on back order everywhere too as well. So we won't actually because of this have access to azithromycin for our patients that may or may not need, may need it for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so use drugs. You know, if there is some question, if it's if it's if it, there is cap within the differential diagnosis, once we're relatively reassured that it's COVID, I would actually discontinue these medications. As we're seeing more and more patients come to the hospital, if you you know imagine we're going to see 50 to 100 to even more patients being admitted a day that are on antibiotics that are being cohorted in hospitals and they're getting antibiotics, the last thing we need in, in an outbreak like this is a C. difficile outbreak too as well. And so be judicious about your use of antibiotics once things are very clear about what the diagnosis is. All right, so uh, the next question is, okay, just to summarize exactly what should happen right now, because it's probably just only for today, uh, Thursday, March 26, 2020, protocols are changing from time to time. Mm-hmm. but. Um, when uh, COVID testing and ED uh, and the patient is then released to the ward. Um, and I assume that the question meant that if this person is positive, when should we be wearing masks? So everyone that, that is being tested for COVID where there's a clinical suspicion should be in droplet and contact precautions, period. Okay. Uh, and so, so the bottom line is if you're thinking about it, they should be isolated as if they have it. 
Okay. Uh, and again, that the, DS, sorry. I guess say the test was negative because you said that oh. it might not be. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. So, so again, that's that's probably um, that uh, that concept of pretest probability, right? So, if you have a low pretest probability, you find another etiology. It sounds much more like heart failure. Uh, then, then perhaps that person uh, is is someone that could be deflagged. Although they should be watched to see that their symptoms don't change, as we're seeing community spread in hospital, and we know the incubation period can be as long as two to ten days. They could very well then down the line develop respiratory symptoms and have to be isolated for that in that sense. Um, but in the, the the context of someone with a moderate to a high pretest probability, it's not as simple as deflagging them immediately. And I think you have to still look at the patient completely and consider either retesting, getting sputum, or getting a second opinion on whether or not we could deflag them. Uh, another point was by uh, Dr. Cole. Who says tolosilumab as a no tolosilumab? Yeah, the the IL six inhibitor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. IL six inhibitor act uh, actemra. Actemra. Yeah, Um, is easier to say. Always uh, the trade name, right? Uh, (laughs) Is relatively widely used in Italy, and I think that they're working in the front lines using it. Uh, Roche seems to be doing an RCT right now as well. So, mm-hmm. so I think I think again we're we're looking at hopefully bringing that on board. I, I know I feel that some initial paperwork around this recently. So, if we do get access to that again, I would give it in the clinical tr- trial context. I wouldn't necessarily be giving it outside of that because you know uh, as we know about you know things like activated protein C with sepsis, simply examining or simply interrupting a cascade may not actually give us the positive effects that we want. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there may be actually worsening downstream effects. So it really has to be in the clinical trial context. Okay. Uh, the next thing would be, um, why does the case definition still refer to travel when we have uh, active community spread most likely? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think regions are coming up with their case definition on their own rather than relying on provincial and, and, and federal definitions. So the city of Toronto said test everyone that, that has compatible symptoms. I think as, as again, we move to more of a stewardship intervention in terms of our testing, we're not going to, I mean, most groups are going to just be throwing travel out the window other than being a positive predictive factor and just focusing testing on the people that need testing for medical reasons, for healthcare workers, uh, and for very um, isolated or people who are at high risk uh, in terms of community spread. And then leaving leaving the mild travelers, non-travelers alone just to isolate at home. So uh, I don't know why it hasn't changed. It's more bureaucratic than it is um, evidence-based. But I think everything's changing by the day. I wouldn't be surprised by the end of the week or early next week that the definition changes mm-hmm. to this, this non-travel-based approach. Yeah, for sure. If you're working during a day, daytime hours you you may need to pay, pay attention to the news because mid, mid middle of your day you may have something yeah something happened yeah exactly <laughs> uh the policy may change uh yeah the, uh I, I think what you're describing is kind of something more similar to the way that we judiciously do nps's in the exactly. influenza time where people who are being admitted who are going to be going back to close quarters uh maybe um in a vulnerable populations like in the prison population or um, in shelter populations would be imperative to test and think about, right? So um, yeah, exactly. I think that, that resonates with a lot of us, uh, but uh, currently it's not the situation yet. Now there's a rehab professional, Brenda, on, on the line there that has been asking, um, um, 
are we tracking recovery trajectory for people who are on the other other side of this? Is there any sense of what help or hinders kind of like as people recover, especially for the very severe cases? I mean, yeah. People in ICU I mean, are not doing great, so I don't know how much we have there is at that level, but maybe yeah. people are admitted but not, uh, but not ICU territory. I mean, I, I can say, again, this is anecdotally, the, the reports even in people who are young and healthy who are getting mild disease with, with significant symptoms, not requiring hospitalization, they're really, really, really put out by this. So um, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not recovering like it would be just a typical cold and flu. Uh, and so you're right. Rehab services are part of the the, the plans in, in terms of scaling up. We're going to be dealing with a lot of patients that have been critically ill. We're going to be dealing with a lot of patients that may be on a ventilator for a week or two. And so they're not going to just walk out of hospital once they recover. They're going to, a lot of them, especially as this is a disease of older people, are going to need rehab services going forward. Um, and so, you know, as, as part of being a rehab professional, this is probably something you'll be bringing up amongst your committees in terms of planning and, and building up that, that capacity, because that's going to be the, the second wave of people that, that need care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of the COVID uh, for, as a clinical diagnosis, if you have negative swab, but super high clinical suspicion, mm -hmm. suspicious CT findings and low lymphocyte count, et cetera, like everything says COVID, 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 COVID. Um, that's probably COVID with a yep. negative swab and a false negative. Yep. Right? And as we saw like in that French data, right? There were people that were negative and positive at a, like a day apart and then positive again afterwards, right? So it may just be the day you screen them, they're shedding that type of thing. So they have a high pretest probability, don't take them out of precautions. If they're intubated, send ETA specimens. If they're making sputum, consider sending sputum specimens. I wouldn't induce a sputum on any of them because that's aerosol generating. Yeah. Um, but uh, but if if you're really like, I think this is COVID, I'm pretty sure this is COVID, this has classic COVID features, continue to treat them as COVID until proven otherwise. Okay. Now, the, I guess a follow-up to that would be um, in the setting of someone uh, who has respiratory symptoms, how often are we supposed to be CTing them? Um, is it just more that we're like maybe looking for other things like DVT or something like that? Um, yeah, so, or so we or something like that, that people are getting scanned. Like what's the context? Uh, I know American centers are scanning fairly liberally. Um, I, I think we're actually doing a bit more the opposite. So just to reduce patient movement, uh, if there is... Um, to get patients not again moving around the hospitals if it's just to confirm covid then doing a ct scan is probably not the optimal test if you have a positive nps or very very high pretest probability and they're in respiratory failure because we're not going to do anything different mm -hmm. if there is an alternate diagnosis on the list so if they you think they have a pulmonary embolism or yeah. they have an empyema or some other process that requires ct scanning then that may be appropriate for that patient but for simply for the covid uh, doing a portable chest x-ray, which doesn't have the highest sensitivity and your NPS testing uh, and your clinical suspicion is, is, is reasonable for the sake of not having to move patients in and out of diagnostic radiology in that standpoint. So um, I, again, would, would advise that you're doing CTs only for things that are going to change clinical management, like pulmonary emboli or, or MIEMIs or pneumothoraces and that type of thing. All right. Um, I'm just uh, cherry picking questions now because uh, I, I we're already a little bit running over time. If that's yeah. Okay. 
uh, I guess there's a shout out to a new R Chinese RCT that showed uh, hydroxychloroquine was negative yesterday. So yeah, it was also a very gray journal. So I didn't want to I didn't want to put it in that presentation. I think uh, it was a letter from the Beijing uh, School of Health Sciences. I guess there's a question about like what's the difference between the public health uh, was the bottleneck for the public health testing versus the in hospital testing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a reflection of, of the capacity of public health. When this exploded, they were doing a few tests a day, and that turned into thousands of tests a day. Apparently, when I was listening to the news this morning, there is a plan from the government of Ontario, so this is one of these things that will change probably throughout the day to help with that bottleneck and notifications. But, um, yeah, that's, again, more of a system systems process, I think, than, uh, than a, a clinical process. Okay, uh, and and this uh, this th there's a big question about PPE. So um, especially since uh, there are reported shortages in different places, recent deaths of frontline healthcare workers in kind of New York State and New Jersey, mm -hmm. um, and uh, the idea that the World Health Organization uh, standards in uh, China and Korea were pretty much I think droplet although they seem to take it further with kind of full body gear in some of the COVID only institutions, I think. Um, and then the P CDC recently has endorsed kind of like, if you're out of PPE, maybe a like a handkerchief or a handkerchief yeah, or a uh, scarf might use, might, yeah. might be used, but they can't guarantee that. Um, what's, what's your stance right now? I know there's a lot of volunteers, a lot yeah. of, really coming out of the woodwork to really find us so that's great I think our story is a little bit different from the American story right now but uh, right. so I think the number number one we have reasonable evidence and reasonable data from prior that in SARS that droplet transmission was the major route uh, Mark Loeb who's our division director had done a case controlled studies of, of critical care nurses during SARS uh, that, that looked at people who wore N95 masks versus uh, droplet masks. And in fact, the patients, the people who wore N95 masks, uh, the nurses that wore N95 masks had a higher risk of SARS than people who wore droplet masks. Mark also did a study on influenza, looking at N95 masks versus droplet masks. And a subgroup analysis was, was looking at human coronaviruses too as well. And again, the, the human coronaviruses, the typical ones that circulate that aren't as pathogenic, uh, we're, we're entirely the same between the groups that got N95 versus um, uh, droplet. It was some small numbers, I think about 10 or 8 in each group, but at least some data there suggesting that the droplet mask is reasonable and fits with World Health Organization, uh, uh, Public Health Agency of Canada, Public Health Ontario recommendations and droplet precautions outside of uh, aerosol generating procedures. Mm -hmm. um, the other question about the cloth mask is interesting. I've been asked a lot about this recently. There is a paper from BMJ that looked at uh, homemade cloth masks in the prevention of influenza-like illnesses uh, from 2016. Uh, and essentially, the particulate uh, filtering was pretty much like it only filtered only 3% of the particles. So 97% of what went through went through. Um, and uh, the rates of influenza-like illness as compared to um, regular masks were much higher in the group that was wearing cloth masks. There was also some concerns about the humidity introduced in cloth masks. So you can imagine wearing a handkerchief on your face all day, you're going to get a very humid face and just, you know, uh, from the vapors in your mouth. And so that might actually increase your, your acquisition. So I, I, you know, I think cloth masks are a last, last, last resort on the CDC list of, um, 
uh, of uh, in interventions for PPE prevention. That's on the, the last leg of the list other than over, you know, things like reusing masks and, and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't think cloth masks are, are effective. And I, I, the World Health Organization actually just, uh, under their guidelines say don't use it in any clinical setting. So I, I think they actually may introduce harm, not benefit. Yeah. And so just going back to your uh, um, kind of uh, comment about the ankle x-ray probably not being good for an NPS in this case. Yeah. Uh, Let's say someone has a fracture, though, and has, uh, you know, maybe some kind of like, especially allergy season, some confusing symptoms. Do we swab that person before sending them to the OR? Yeah, and and we're developing, we're actually developing policies around this. So, so uh, because we have access to good testing in house, we have talked about using swabs prior to aerosol generating procedures, whether or not they're elective or non-elective, so intubations even for asymptomatic patients. Uh, and uh, I think this is more for the sake of preserving our PPE supply so that people can continue to wear droplet masks if they swab negative. Uh, there's obviously concern with asymptomatic shedding that if you are, you know, some of the asymptomatic, they break their ankle, they have to go to the OR, they're asymptomatic shedding, shedding COVID, and you intubate them with an NA5, you might, you might spread it around the room. So in that particular context, right prior to an aerosol generating procedure, we are looking and will likely institute a policy around that to, to keep down PPE. But obviously, these are decisions that are made with lab supply and demand in mm-hmm. mind too as well. Yeah, so that might be... It, yeah, this maybe this is something that might be that will be coming down the pipeline. Let's just say that. Okay, and, and then can you explain the rationale a little bit behind the St. Joe's announcement that patients admitted or being admitted for seven days will be tested? Yeah, and I think that that was another look at again just patient safety standpoint. Remember, our our visitor policy came into in effect about a week ago, uh, and so those patients that were there greater than seven days had exposure to visitors. Um, and so we, we, you know, and we know that the incubation period is between two to 10 days. And so it's really just to start with a fresh slate and say those patients that had a lot of community exposure that are still sitting in hospital um, are, are tested just to know their, their status. Uh, and then everyone else going forward is, is, again, a clinical discussion more than anything else. So it's more like an epidemiologic uh, control. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And just, just again, fresh slate, right? Like the people that were exposed to visitors that we don't know their status, mm-hmm. um, that, that we know the, the patient's status that are in hospital, God forbid they need an aerosol generating procedure. All right. Um, one more question uh, from Tim okay. Kirkie, who is asking if uh, you can comment on reinfection. Yeah, this is this is uh, uh, evolving. Remember, this is this is four months old, right? So we have cohorts now that are only four months old that have been infected in, in November. Um, there is some data about people that had virus detected six eight weeks later. It's very unclear whether or not those patients were just prolonged shedders with low level viruses uh, versus. Uh, patients who actually reacquired the infection or reacquired and are just asymptomatically shedding the infection. Uh, we know, for example, dogs can asymptomatically or can we can find it in their nose. They don't get sick with it. They might shed it a little bit. We don't really know what the, uh, the World Health Organization says. They're not a, a big issue. Um, so the bottom line is uh, this is probably data that will come out down the line in terms of the reinfection rate. The promising thing is the Wuhan population seems to be very stable. And so if there was a trend towards reinfection, we probably, or immunity not being long lasting, 
that population would likely break down if, if they kept circulating within the population. So it may there may be some defined immunity just by looking at populations that have dealt with it and have stopped dealing with it, basically. Okay, yeah, we'll t- take a look because I think China's letting loose some of their protocols now, so mm-hmm. um, we'll see. Uh, I'm sure they'd be the first to report because they're the first to kind of control. Um, all right, well, thank okay. you very much. There's a lot of really great questions here. I'm going to copy a copy of the group chat and maybe I can send you some of the extra questions yeah. that over. Uh, we can put them in the YouTube uh, channel comments um, or in the show notes for the YouTube Um uh, Zane, I might be in touch to ask you uh, a couple of follow-up questions or something like that. Sure. Um, so maybe you can send me a voice memo for some things. Um, but other than that, thanks everyone for tuning in today. Uh, thank you so much, Zane, for your time. Yeah, uh, you are definitely a leading expert in our area, mainly because you've been living the life of uh, <laughs> COVID right now. There's a lot of people here that are very grateful for your time. Um, thumbs up from everyone and, uh, and I think that one of the quotes that really stuck, stuck out to me was that uh, we all we swim together or we sink together. So I think that yeah. like, that's something to remember when uh, communicating yeah. with our patients and our colleagues. Uh, they were all in this together uh, as 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 humans as as uh, as a community. So hopefully um, uh, we can all kind of like uh, stay up up on all of these protocols and changing things. So thank you so much for keeping us up to date. Uh, and uh, I think Dr. Crowther is still on a line, I think, is he? I can't see if he wants to say anything, Mark. No, just thanks, Zane, for a truly outstanding set of rounds. It was amazing that you pulled all that efforts together on short notice. And thanks to the uh, attendees, we maxed out at just under 300. We had 283 wow. at peak, so that's insane. Um, for those who've asked, if you can just set, tell others, as, as Dr. Chan just said, we will be putting this up on YouTube later on today. Uh, Dr. Merckx's rounds from two weeks ago has had uh, an insane number of views, and I anticipate this will get an insane number of views as well. So thanks, everybody, and thanks, Zane, uh, for doing this. We'll chat with you later. All right, so that's a much longer podcast than we usually put out there, but considering the urgency of the situation and the need to keep everyone well informed about the pandemic, we thought it'd be important to put it all out there. Obviously, some of his references were to the slides that you could not see. And if you're interested in seeing those, you can check out the YouTube video that's available. You can search for the Mac Department of Medicine uh, YouTube channel and look for the YouTube video there. Thanks so much again for tuning in to this special edition of Mac Emerge Podcast. And we'll be coming back with our regular scheduled episodes soon enough uh, next week on April 1st, 2020. Until then, be safe and wash your hands.